listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody. Welcome back again to the podcast. I'm thrilled that you're here. And I actually am pretty excited about this episode, which you might say, why would you be excited? It's just part two of a conversation that you had last time with Mark Oppenheimer. And the answer is, it's actually a whole different conversation. Um, Mark and I, at the end of our last conversation, this isn't like we took one recording and cut it in half. We had this one call, and at the end of it, Mark was like, I just don't feel like we we finished up. And I was like, I, I know what you mean. And so I listened to the, to, to the last episode, and he listened to it, and we were both like, yeah, we've got something else we've got to talk about. We've got to get practical. Um, we got to get out of the clouds and into how do we actually have better conversations. And I discovered that Mark's passion for raising the discourse is absolutely the equal of mine, if not more. He's really into it. And I feel like together we hammered out a, out of a pretty intellectual, high-minded kind of thing, which is, you know, not where I usually spend much of my time, but out of that, we got into a really practical set of ideas for how not just in the big world there can be a better discourse, you know, on the national stage, but but even very, some very clear ideas of how individual people can have better conversations with people with whom they disagree in their family. You know I'm talking to you. So we'll get into that. And I think you'll enjoy this. If you liked the last conversation, I think you'll enjoy this one more. If you were like, eh, about the last conversation, I think you'll enjoy this one more. If you turned off the last conversation, you'll probably turn this one off too because it's still me and Mark Oppenheimer. And if you hate the way we sound, I can't help you. Um, before we get to that, a lot of you, and I mean a lot of the people who are part of this Humanize Me community, have written me really nice notes once they figured out that my dad's stroke was a big deal. Some shared stories of their own experiences with a parent having a stroke or a parent sort of being in the hospital during this coronavirus thing. Um, just a lot of really warm, kind-hearted stuff. Connie Dollins, who's out there, one of our supporters, um, turns out she's a physical therapist and she, she wrote in and said, Hey, I've got some ideas. If you want to talk, um, that's kind of my area of specialty. I mean, there, you, you, whatever you talk about on this show, there's somebody in our audience who has some expertise in it. And, um, and usually they're a nice enough person that they want to share it. So, um, I'm going to be talking about some of my, uh, tax issues and, um, and some home maintenance stuff later on in the program. Uh, just stay tuned. I'm just kidding. Why do I say I'm just kidding? As if I'm not funny enough that you would recognize a joke, that you would chuckle and think, gosh, that guy's clever. Why do I have to qualify it? Is it because I'm alone in a room with no reaction? Or is it because deep down I've got some insecurities about my humor? I don't know. What I do know is I'm really grateful to have so many wonderful people in the audience, uh, in the community, in the conversation. And uh, when people reach out the way so many of you have reached out, it lifts my spirits and it just motivates me. Um, 
which is really important right now because I, as you know, I'm struggling with a certain kind of motivation and the ability to initiate and feeling like there are people out there that care about me, about one another, about their parents, about their relationships. It, it just reminds me that I'm connected to a world that I want to contribute to, that I want to participate in, that I want to serve. So yeah, just in case you're wondering, not just with me, but with anyone, um, somebody writes a book that you like, should you write them an email? Uh, should you track them down and leave a voicemail and say, wow, I really appreciated your work? Yes, you should. Somebody at a store provides you with a certain kind of service or, or says something sweet to you. Should you drop a note back? Um, yeah, you, you should. Uh, there's, there's a world full of people that are trying. And in case you're wondering whether little old you or little old me whether our affirmation or our encouragement or our thanks touches them. I'm here to tell you that every time I've done that, every time I've reached out to somebody, the person has let me know that it touched them. And boy, every time everybody, anybody reaches out to me, it makes a difference. So there's that. All right. Now, Oppenheimer, me, talking about hard conversations. Uh, there's a funny moment. It's funny in retrospect where I bring up Seth Rogen's participation on Mark Marin's podcast, recently controversial interview. And Oppenheimer says, yeah, I heard about that. Of course, I haven't listened to it. Who has time to listen to an hour long podcast conversation? And I laugh because of course, you're about to hear one and I do. And he has time to participate in one. So let's stop looking down our nose at long conversations. We all love them when they're good. And I think this is one of them. I'll see you on the other side after you've listened to me and Mark chopping it up on Humanize Me. I was, I did listen to our, our conversation. I'm wondering, kind of, I, I got the impression towards the end of it that you were like, this was fun, great talking to you, but there's this stuff I, I felt like we should have talked about or that, that there was something no, you you had to say. No, I, I mean, I really wasn't. It was really that I felt that we spent a lot of time on the letter to Harper's Magazine, which is one small sliver and and, and with sort of cruelty online, which is one small sliver of what's interesting in the world. And I had to imagine there were other things you wanted to talk to me about. Certainly there's other things I enjoy talking with you about, but um, it was no one specific thing. It was, it was really, and I feel like I also don't enjoy an interview where all I do or a piece I write when all I say is the negative. Here's what's, what's terrible. And you know, That's when I talk about I this with students, with. when I talk about this with students who get it, who get like, yeah, this is horrible. They don't know what to do. You know, they don't know, well, how can we create a kinder culture? Right. How can we, you know, for, for one thing, they're fed a lot of lies. They're told that they have to be on social media if they ever want a career. They're told that like they have to build their own brand starting at the age of 17 or 12. Uh, none of which is true, 
at all. Um, and so they feel locked into this and, um, and they don't know a way out. And I think yeah. that that's what interests me is like, okay, well, where, where do we go? What's the way well, back to a more civil community? Well, I had a really interesting moment because as I'm listening to our conversation, I'm thinking, okay, we're, we're really describing what's wrong yeah. out there with cancel culture and stuff. And I think that's important and interesting. But a quote came to my mind and I couldn't remember who said it. I, I thought I can use this quote as a transition piece. You know, there's this quote that the, the, the best way to replace a bad idea is with a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, you, and so I went looking for that quote, some version of it, you know, and, uh, and I figured out who said it and, and I was like, Jack Kemp said it and I thought, <laughs> oh, I can't use that. I can't quote Jack Kemp. And then I thought, oh my gosh, you're just like everybody else. Like if, if Jack Kemp said it, you're not gonna, you know, cause he was right. a famous conservative. And I thought, right. oh, you idiot. It's a yeah. great, it's a great idea that the, the way to defeat a bad idea it's is a with a idea. better idea. I had a student, I was talking to a student yesterday, a really thoughtful college student who understands that uh, right now she's living in a very unkind time and, and a fearful time uh, where people feel that if they say the wrong thing, they'll be attacked by their peers, potentially with career consequences, but, but certainly with personal consequences, right? Certainly with consequences of more suffering than you should get for saying something people disagree with and um, and that it's poisoned relations on campus. I mean, that was the thing I came away with our conversation with was I thought, holy cow, you know, there now are people walking on campus who really hate each other or are afraid of each other. Oh yeah. And the first thing I said to her was, I said, you know, I said, you know, very recently in American history, it wasn't like this. Like I'm coming up on my 25th college reunion. When I was in college, I wasn't afraid of anybody. I didn't hate anybody on campus. I mean, there were people I didn't like. There was, you know, that guy who was a jerk or, you know, that person I thought was obnoxious in, you know, in seminar and always spoke up too much. And, you know, there were. But that guy could agree with you. Ideologically, he could agree with you. And you just like, he's just right. a jerk. He's just a jerk. But there was nobody who was ever cruel to me in four years of college. I mean, there were people who in a drunken moment said something horrible. And, you know, there were bad breakups where people, you know, hated each other for the reason for the reasons of romantic fallout you know there was life but basically uh everyone like got along you know you didn't you didn't have enemies and um and of course since most people still are fundamentally decent to each other in person right most people would never say the things to someone's face that they say about them online ever uh you really went weeks months at a time without anyone being really rude or cruel or dismissive of you to your face. <laughs> you, you essentially lived it as we all did. We all walked through our days, not really worried. I mean, some people did, right? Some people were in abusive relationships. Some people had toxic friendships. Some people had abusive bosses, but basically, you know, in our neighborhood, uh, in, in our social lives, et cetera, most of us were able to lead a life that was relatively free of people saying overtly mean things to us. And she couldn't believe that. She thought, oh my God, that must have been amazing. And I said, yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> you know, we didn't think of it that way. We thought of it as life. Life before the internet was like that. 
um, if somebody was aggressively mean to you in person, that was a story you dined out on for a month or two. And I said, so the first thing is to, to my mind is we really have to educate our children and each other about how toxic the internet is, because I still have not solved this one fundamental question. What is it about Twitter that allows people and encourages people? And I mean this very sincerely, I'm not being a faux naive about this, that allows and encourages people to say things person to person to another human being or about another human being in public that they literally wouldn't say at the coffee shop to them. They still know who each other are. It's not anonymous. It's just that something about the virtual gap, the, the digital or the digital gap means, I mean, I recently saw two New York Times writers being demeaning and abusive to each other online in a real junior high kind of way. And I thought if these two people were in the cafeteria at 628th Avenue together, they wouldn't talk. To, maybe they'd ignore each other, but they wouldn't talk to each other. I, like that. I don't know. I don't know. If so we have to solve for that. I, we have I, to I, figure I, I, out like, yeah. Yes. But I don't, I don't think you're right because what I think is, is that there were, th- if we'd have stayed in face-to-face contact, if, if that was the way that discourse happened more often, um, you're right. People would have never talked about, we, we would have never gotten to talking that way. But what happens is, is that we got into this anonymous way of talking on the internet and that then shaped our consciousness. So now when people are together, like that young student of yours, what she would say is, oh, now when people are together, they would say those things to each other. People are much freer to say mean things to each other now than they were 20 years ago. I think it's, I think the- Really? I th- but do they, I, when, you were, when you were working at USC, which was only what, four years ago? Right. Five years ago? Were they, were they saying things to each other's faces in, you know, at the dining hall? Like the kind I think, of abuse that they heap, each, heap on each other at Twitter, on Twitter? When you got into an argument, I mean, not like if somebody cut in front of you in the line, but when you got into an argument about ideas, I watch students, and not only students with students, but also sometimes students with professors. Like you will, you'll see these videotaped conversations of when students yeah. confront a professor who is right. has said some. And they say horrible things about them, and they and no, they that's... and they and they don't listen to them, and they interrupt, and they shout over them in ways that are impolite. No, I I think you're right. We're definitely. I mean, in that sense, it looks a lot like the late '60s when students who were occupying buildings would, you know, some professor would try to talk them down from the ledge. And they would, you know, shout at them, you're just a pig and you're, you know, a tool. Of the, I mean, they would, they would abuse them verbally and vice versa, right? Uh, there are definitely moments when I think, and maybe, maybe the dam has broken and that's not an aberration anymore now. But I still think that it's a lot harder to say things to someone's face. And I think some of the instances you're talking about are when there's a crowd and it doesn't feel as personal. It feels like you're playing to the crowd or that's the mood of the crowd. That's really I still true. think that's really true. I still true. think that you know. Well, look. Let me speak from personal experience. I have written stuff that has gotten tremendous online abuse from people who, to but who don't. But I never get emails that are like that. Right. I no, know it, it's 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 true. I was thinking about that when you were talking about the let the way that public discourse used to happen with letters to the editor. 
at, versus these the comments section. And I thought, yeah, yeah, because in letters to the editor, you signed your name. Yeah, and, and moreover, yeah. here's the weird thing is, is you had to you had to get a stamp. Yes, the, you the, had to spend the thirty cents or twenty five cents or whatever it was at the time. And I remember there being issues that when it came down to it, I was like, it's not it's not worth the trouble of actually getting out a typewriter, writing the letter, putting a it's stamp on it. It's not worth the stamp. And yeah. I let it go. And now I think the meanest comments are by people that wouldn't have bothered with a stamp. I think, I think and, and, and so, yeah, the, com the comments I see on things that I do versus the emails that people actually address to me that they know I will respond to because I do respond to every email. Um, oh my gosh. No, that's right. A, Totally it's a tone. different, it's a wholly different tone. And we haven't, there was nothing like that before in human history, the anonymous comments section. I can't think of anything like that or the, the Twitterverse or the Facebook thread. I mean, I had a colleague, uh, a woman who's, whom I both like personally and really admire as a scholar um, say to me right before I got off Facebook, and it was one of the things that got me off Facebook, we were in some argument about voter suppression or mail-in voting, you know, something where we both agreed, right? Where we were both like on the side of greater voter access. Uh, we both have donated, I think, to probably a lot of the same liberal candidates. I mean, we're on the same, we weren't in an existential crisis and, or an existential conflict. And I said something on this long thread and we're on someone else's Facebook page. So it's not as if she felt this need to moderate and be the big, you know, mover and shaker in the, in the virtual room. But I made some comment um, that I think had to do with, with people getting out and organizing door to door rather than on Facebook. And I made some comment about, you know, I think a lot of people on this thread, I didn't name any names, but you know, I might've been a, a, attacking clearly certain contributors that I think a lot of people on this thread um, are, you know, Facebook warriors, but you have to organize. That's it. You know, it wasn't the nicest thing I've ever said, but it wasn't cruel and it didn't name anyone. And she wrote to me offline and accused me of being a mansplaining asshole. And um, I'll I might have been mansplaining. I'm, I'm not sure if it, I don't think that I knew the gender of the people I was attacking. I think I just read the comments and there was lots of people who live in a suburb where I don't know people. Um, it's possible. Like I'm open to the possibility that I was, you know, bestowing my man knowledge on a couple commenters who were women. I don't think there was anything gendered in the exchange that said mansplaining asshole. I mean, this is someone, our kids have played together, you know, like why would you ever go? It was just not, there was no need to then take it to the level of let's have a bar fight. But, and this is someone who in person is exceptionally decent, like much more so than I am, is is so careful to be considerate and give people the benefit of the doubt. But simply the fact that it was being typed and we were six miles away from each other as it was happening, she's calling me an asshole. And it shook me. It really shook me. Yeah. Just because I and because I was raised that like you don't if you do that, I mean it's not that I've never called a friend an asshole, but I get off the phone or leave the situation and like I'm stewing over how poorly I treated them and I call them later and apologize or I avoid them cow in a cowardly way. But it, it marks me when I've behaved like that. And it was like as nothing to this person. And, and by the way, I haven't seen her since for whatever, for various reasons, we don't cross paths 
in town as much anymore. I think maybe our kids aren't, you know, doing the same activities or whatever. So, and that was maybe a couple of years ago, but if we did, I don't think she'd have any memory of this. I think she feels very warmly toward me and thinks we still have a real friendship and, but I, it's still, I carry it with me still. Yeah. What's happened to our society. We're like two people who regard each other warmly. We've like, we've done Passover together back when our kids were really little. You just call me an asshole. Well, you know, and here's the thing. Here's the, I, the, the, you know, when you talk about replacing a bad idea with a good idea, I think maybe this is the first positive thing we could, we could agree on or say here. And that is if anybody offends you or their ideas offend you or their article or their whatever it is, I would just encourage anyone listening to us to say, write directly to that person privately. Yes. yes. Like do that first. Yes. Um, and, and, and you say, well, oh, come on, M- you know, that famous writer isn't going to write back to me. Almost always they do. Like often they do. Um, but I, I just think, and, and, and in your family, in your family, here's one of the things like people are, they, they, they have the, the Facebook, the group Facebook or the group text going. And I'm going like, if somebody offends you on the group text thing, don't respond on the group text. Mm-hmm. Just write on the group's text, hey, when can we talk? And actually have a conversation because the audience thing changes everything. People are able to change their minds. They're able to brook criticism. They're like lots of things are possible when there's no audience. Right. So I completely agree. And you'd think that an audience would make us more careful because we wouldn't want to look like bad people in front of the audience, but it actually makes us more defensive and less um, open. Open. Yeah. It's very weird to me. Well, I mean, I think about it writ large in politics. What is the worst thing you can be called in politics? And that's a flip-flopper. Right. If somebody pulls that, you, you, you make a statement about what you think should, should be happening on taxation, and somebody pulls out a quote from you 20 years ago and says, well, you said the opposite then. And you go like, yeah, I changed my mind. Like I read some books. I learned something. Like I had right, a conversation with a colleague. It changed me. It's, it seems to me that the one thing we should want in our politicians, in our public people, and, and in our friends is an openness to change. But, but, but in our society, in public discourse, people feel a great need to defend the position that they've already staked out. That's why, you know, if you've ever been doing atheist versus a believer debate, there, I mean, nothing happens. Right. No one it's ever all says, perform- well, that makes some sense. It's all right. performative. Right. I, I actually was once talking to, I was thinking it was Hugh Hewitt, who's a quite conservative talk show host. Um, and he had me on to talk about something. Uh, and part of the thing is that he interrupts you and browbeats you. And at one point I said to him, Hugh, I imagine neither one of us has a corner on the truth. So why don't you let me talk and listen, hear me out and I'll hear you out. And then we'll each talk about ways in which maybe we've moved a little. <laughs> and like, that was so enough. That was so anathema to the spirit of his show of right-wing talk radio. And of course he makes a big show of he's a Christian and he has friends across the, he, he actually is someone, isn't he, is he the one who's a friend of yours? No, no, I don't know him. 
there's somebody who's become more, oh, I know who it is. It's the former LA Times religion writer who had been an evangelical and whose name I'm Bill Lobdell and then became a, a humanist and wrote a book about it, about losing his faith. And he and Hugh stayed very good friends. Anyway, Hugh's a mensch. He's a good guy in person, I understand. But the idea that we'd actually listen to each other and then publicly we would each talk about ways in which maybe we had moved a little or changed our minds. He wasn't going to do that. <laughs> that was well, not, that's no. not his cup of tea. And, and, you know, it's funny. I learned this thing um, from watching conservatives like Jordan Peterson and um, another's talk is that they'll sometimes, when they're arguing amongst themselves, they'll they'll do a thing called strong manning, which is the opposite of straw oh, manning. Man. Yeah. Steel manning. That's it. It's called steel manning. And they say, you give me the best perspective. Mm -hmm. Like in the, you know, yep. I'm going to articulate your position in the most positive way I can think of it. Like what I think you're saying is this, and until you're satisfied with my understanding of your position, we're not going to go any further. Like I'm going to, I'm going to get you and you're going to get me. And then we're going to argue. Oh, that's great. That's and, great. And I think in some ways, this is a little bit in, in, in the sense of the same way as I think it would be really good if at the end of a conversation, um, you said, here's how, like, you tell me how you've changed your mind and I'll tell you how, I, I, you know, or, and I'll tell you how I've changed mine or how you've changed mine. Um, but I think that celebrating understanding the other person's perspective and not distorting it so that you can win the argument and celebrating when somebody actually impacts your thinking. I think those would be really positive things to do in, in any of these public discourses, like even in a, even in a comment section or in a letter to the editor. Um, I think it would be really important to sort of go like, this is what I think is the best about your idea. And here's I where I take I, issue with it. I, I think that's a great practice. Um, okay, so we're getting down to brass tacks. Like, what can we do to be better? And I think, so one rule I have is that I try never to say anything that I wouldn't want my kids to see me say. I try never to treat anyone. You know, if I'm in an interaction with someone or writing an email, an angry email to someone. I or, know, that's why, you know, that's why I was really upset when I met your two-year-old and she was like, you're an ignorant asshole. Because I think like- <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I know you're comfortable with, you know, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, she's seven now. She would probably tell you that to your face. Um, but that's because you are, Bart. Um, you know, <laughs> the truth, the truth, the truth hurts, doesn't it? Um, so, but I really, I mean, one time one of my daughters looked over my shoulder when I was, this was four or five years ago when I was still on social media and I was writing something snarky to someone. And she said, don't, you know, uh, don't do that. What, why are you talking that way? And I was so ashamed. I, I mean, it was like, it took a child to see that I was behaving in a way that I wouldn't have allowed her to behave. So I think number one is don't act in ways you wouldn't let your kids act. And I have to think that even some of the people who are cruelest on Twitter, if they saw their children being cruel in exactly the same way, they would tell them not to, right? They would, you know, the scales would fall from their eyes. They'd see. I don't think they ever apply that heuristic to it. I don't think they ever apply that lens, but basically behave in a way that you're, that if you're at all a good parent, you're raising your children to behave. So that's number one is don't write, write anything or say anything that you wouldn't, that, that would make you ashamed if your children caught you. Um, I think that's a really, really important one. Um, number two, I think is, um, you know, this is more controversial for a lot of people, but I really do say don't be on social media. I think it's, I don't think we as humans have figured out a culture of how to make it a 
civil supportive place. And I, and there's some really serious counter arguments to that. I mean, I always get here from the people who say, you know, the internet saved my life. I was a scared, um, different, yeah. strange kid in a small town. And if I hadn't discovered, you know, for whatever reasons, I was racially different. I was different in yeah. gender or sexuality. I was different in, in that I was an atheist in, a, in an evangelical town, whatever. And if I hadn't discovered my community online, I would have felt so alone. Who knows what I would have done? I get that. I still think that for the vast majority of people, and in some, um, it is the internet is obviously destructive to our mental health, even though it has been good for some people. That doesn't change my mind about it. And I think um, I think we've got the science to back you up on that one. I think I think it's increasingly clear that that the science backs us up on that. Yeah, so those are kind of the big two. I mean, for my kids, it's like don't say anything that you wouldn't want others to see you say that would make you ashamed, and don't be on social media. You know, beyond that, the big, the third, I would guess, is then we move from there to craft an affirmative appreciation of of diver of a diversity of voices in every way, racially diverse, gender diverse, but also ideologically diverse. That we think it's exciting when there are people who aren't like us. That it's not threatening. That it's exciting. And and, and, and I think like we talked permanently in it. Yeah, in the last conversation, we talked a bit, little bit about that—the joy of the joy yeah. of encountering other people and celebrating that. Yeah. I, 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 I have an I, I have a thought about that first one though about the kid thing. You know, like yeah. the way we engage. Because I, I, I recently read an article um, by a guy named Gosh, what was that guy's name? Um, Jacob Howland. Does that name ring a bell with you? Nope. It was, it was about what he called new, the new Puritanism. And basically mm -hmm. what he was saying is, is that kind of liberal orthodoxy is being approached by a lot of people in a very religious way. Um, oh, yeah. And, and so he sort of jumps off of he's, – he's, and, and something you would be familiar with because you know the evangelical community. Like he says, you know, classic Calvinism was a way of addressing sort of people's salvation anxiety. You know? Oh yeah, I think I read this piece. Okay, I think I read this. Yeah, yeah. So, so he's like totally in, in Calvinism. You know, God predestines some for heaven and some for hell. But how do you know which one you are? And Calvin proposed that if you were hardworking and and virtuous, you would pr and, and got and you were among the elect, you would prosper. And so that wealth and power were signs of God's favor. And you know this is Max Weber, the Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism. That that this driving desire to be to be marked, to to have to be virtuous, to be to be understood to be one of the elect, drove mm -hmm. people to be really successful. And mm -hmm. uh, he said, but what, the, 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 ironically, he said what it did was it sort of shifted the modality of the Christian from being a humble sinner to being a self-confident saint. Like, look, clearly I am, clearly I am virtuous. Mm -hmm. Look, look at my farm. Um, and what he says is he says, that's what's happened now in a sort of a secular way. Transformative social action and egalitarianism and all these kind of social justice values that we have um, mm -hmm. have become kind of the new way of signaling that you are a good person mm -hmm. and that what you have now are not humble 
sinners so, who sort of go like, yeah, I've got a lot, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a lot to learn, but rather self-confident people to say like, no, I know what's up. Like, I, I, I know about intersectionality. I know about this. I know about that. Like, I am woke, woker yeah. than thou. And, and similarly, it comes with its, with its cruelties, right? Because since you have to draw boundaries, you end up excluding people too, right? Which was a hallmark of Calvinism, right? Who's the elect? And so one of the really cruel things you see in this new Puritanism is um, an ageism, you know, people people will defend the um, the ethnocentrism, the idea that you know how could white people know this? How could men know this? And and th- there's there's you know interesting conversations to be had on those counts. But what about the ageism? What about you know when people say um, you know well that's just an old white guy? Why old? You know you could stop at white guy. Why is being elderly? <laughs> Think about that. Like why is being in your you know why is being in your sixties or seventies now seen as evidence that you must be untrustworthy. And that to me has been a really interesting thing that nobody has talked about. You know, in the 1960s, when the Black Panthers were showing the way to a certain kind of proud liberatory spirit for a lot of groups and radical feminists were taking pages from them, there were the Grey Panthers who had kind of been lost to history, but they were uh, an old people's rights group. Maggie Coon, I met her. She was the the founder of the Grey Panthers. And- you know, one thing that's happened is we old people have ceased to be proud to be old, right? They all want to stay young forever. And so that's been a problem for the movement is old, like fat, is still one of those things where the people who are willing to be proud of it is a is a small avant-garde, and a lot of people are still running from it. But for whatever reason, society has turned on old people in a really vicious way. I mean, it is, you know, people I have been in meetings where people have said, you know. Let's hire a smart young person for this job. You can't say that any more than you can say, let's hire a smart white person or a smart straight person. You can't say young. That's a protected class. Age over 40 is a protected class in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And people don't know that. They'd be baffled to hear that. The cult of the young right now is so strong. So to getting back to your point, one of the ways you enforce this, this Puritanism and the elect is when you have new terminology, you... Um, you uh, fetishize new technologies. You basically fetishize the new in a way that makes it very hard for old people to keep up with. And so the idea that you could value somebody who's not up on lingo that's being developed on college campuses, or who's not up on software that they could probably learn, but that might've been issued last year. um, And that that's a reason to write them out of the job. Well, And that might be the next positive idea that we have and that is in this in seeking out diversity um in your life and in trying to engage people who think differently than you or have a different frame or perspective than you mm-hmm. include old people oh the whole thing is different if you have an intergenerational room because old people of all races are often a lot saner and a lot um more compassionate. One of the things that we know from studies comes with age is compassion. And people realize that we're all just struggling to figure this game of life and out. Humility. And often and humility. ideological humility where a person goes like, yeah, I thought I knew everything when I was, tw- you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not so sure. You know, you know, what's interesting about this is that you and me talking, this is really interesting about this is that where was the one place in American society where young people had meaningful relationships with old people. 
Where was church. the one intergenerational space? Right, church. Church and synagogue. Yeah. Church, synagogue, mosque, whatever. Like religious communities were the places. And so when you get into these, this secular age and you say like, wait, we're, we're too secular guys, basically, you know, we're two sort of yeah. non-supernaturalist dudes. And we're going like, yeah, big problem in the secular age is the lack of intergenerational spiritual communities. Because that was the place where people got access to that kind of perspective. And one of the things that I value, that I'm missing, because, you know, even though we align on most of this stuff, I am still in a religious community. Um which is, you know, as we've talked about before, an easier thing to square when you're Jewish because yeah. Judaism is is different from, I don't want to say bigger than, but different from just a belief system. Um, I miss going to, I mean, with COVID, I miss, you know, my kids were seeing old people every week, um, disabled people every week, um, some non-white people every week in our synagogue. Um, you know, it was uh, in many ways um, a much more diverse community than, um than a lot of communities that they're in, although they're in, you know, very diverse schools as well. I mean, you know, and we live in, in a, but again, you know, a diverse school doesn't but, get it when it comes to old people. That's right. No, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And, and, and that was, but as you know, one of the temptations in the religious world that a lot of pastors give into is they want the young church, right? Old people are, are bad for your hipster value. And I'm actually like, you must have seen this at times. I mean, we're, I hope it never got too bad, but there must've been times when pastors slid into like, where's, you know, got to get the young in a way that devalued the old. Yeah. I mean, that, that second clause is the important thing because you do got to get the young if you want to keep you any community going. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm missing the same thing because here in Cincinnati, we created a uh, a humanist community that looks a lot like a church in terms of the the kind of families that are involved and the kind of people. And for my kids and or for my granddaughter and for the kids that were a part of it, it's a chance to run around after the, after the meeting while everyone's having coffee and talking and to interact with people that are radically different than anyone they meet in their own, in their own world. I, at my, I'm studying this, I'm in this counseling program at Xavier right now. Mm -hmm. And so I'm studying alongside like a million 25 year old young women who, mm -hmm. you know, are in the same program. And the other day I asked in, in one of those Zoom classes where there were like 30 people there, because we were talking about issues of aging. And I said, how many of you know a person significantly older than yourself, other than than your family? Yeah. And none of them did. That's amazing. None of them did. And, and they were a little sheepish about it. And, and I thought, because you have a very different relationship with your grandfather. Like that's somebody who, who, who you relate to one way because he's in your family. But, but, but having access to older people as friends or as people, as mentors – I, I just, and, and, and that's a little bit what your friend William, uh, and I'm going to blank on his last name when he was writing Excellent Sheep. Teresowitz. Yeah. yeah. One of the things he was saying is, is on a college campus, students no longer get access to their professors in that kind of personal way. Yeah. And the professors don't feel the freedom to engage them as friends in the way that perhaps they would have in another era. 
And so they're robbed of the experience of having an, a grown up who isn't related to them, who cares about what's happening in their life. Yeah. But I also think that's going to, that would change the dialogue. No, you're right. And it is, it is a, a feature of secularism and, and certain kinds of residential segregation. I'm a little surprised that none of these 25 year olds knew an older person only because, you know, and maybe it's because given our economy, so many of them are living at home with their parents. But if you move into the kind of, you know, relatively cheap condo association off the highway that a lot, a lot, that is the first apartment for a lot of people, there often are a wide array of ages in there, right? There's the divorced dad, there's the pensioner, elderly grandma, there, you know, like if it might just be, they're not talking to their neighbors, you know, because most people starting out in life don't have the luxury, if you call it that, of living in a, an, uh, you know, a homogeneously young community. But of course, um, nobody's talking to their neighbors. Everybody's inside. I guess not talking everybody's to inside talking to people just like yeah. them online. No, I mean I'm really lucky on my street. Like the woman on one side of us is 92, and the woman on the other is 74, and they both play with our kids and are really important in our lives. We, you know, but but if you go down our street, you know, it's like young family, old, middle aged, empty nester, young, young, old, middle. Like it's just a mix because it's a neighborhood. So I guess the thing that we're lucky to have going for us is, by and large, it is a street where people talk to each other. And there are reasons for that that I'm, you know, fairly obsessed with about what makes some neighborhoods talky and friendly and others not. But they do th take old people seriously. My, my kids I, are really not ageist. They are genuinely do not devalue the old because of all the older people in their lives. I, um, I still remember I was walking down the boardwalk in Ocean City. When you say your kids are not ageist, I'm like, I was, I'm walking down the boardwalk in Ocean City with my, my aunt and uncle who I didn't know very well. You know, I, I, we didn't grow up close, right. you know, but we, we, we were on this family vacation and we were walking down the street and I had just gotten married. Marty and I are walking down the street and some conversation came up about some, somebody who had cheated on their wife or somebody. Who, and I, I just went off. I was like, you know, that I would never do that. And, you know, like people like, you know, th that guy has lost his platform and this and that. And my uncle, a Baptist minister, says, you know, Bart, he said, it's often a lot more complicated than that. And I said, no, yeah. it's not complicated. You make a promise that you're going to be faithful right. to something. And he said, you know, I said, I just got to tell you, <laughs> uh, it, 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 you you're going to get older and you're going to look back. And you're going to realize that it wasn't that clear cut. And this is a guy who should have been puritanical, right? That's but right. he had he had been around. But he'd seen some. He'd seen some stuff. That's and, right. He had seen and, some stuff. And now I look back at that and I think, oh man, did I? What? 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 Who did I think I was? What did I know about marriage? What did I know about what people go through? What did I know yeah. about the reasons that drive people to do the things that they do? And. And so I think that that perspective, um, I, yeah, I think, I think one of the ways to detoxify the conversation is to both stay in touch with, because that's the other thing, is I'll talk to college students and I'll say, other than the ones in your own family, which most of them don't have any babies or toddlers in their own family, I go like, what toddlers or babies are you regularly or, or four-year-olds, are you regularly in touch with? And they'll say, oh, none. And I go like, oh, 
you're going to, you're going to become a lot more mean spirited talker if you're not being observed by a child. And you're also going to become a much more mean spirited talker if you don't have the perspective of an old person. So I think this intergenerational thing may be one of the, it may be like one of the strange little keys to getting, to getting to a better place in the way that we talk to each other. Yeah. I, I, look, there's a lot of, there are a lot of little answers. I mean, I tend to think that one single bullet answer as a, as a dad is I don't let my kids on social media, at least until they're 18, because I think that will train them in certain habits of decency. They won't, I think social media is coarsening in a way that it's hard to undo. As you said, you now see kids for whom it's just part of the culture that they speak abusively to people. But that's that's a that's one piece. That's the closest I can think of to a silver bullet. I think there are a lot of answers otherwise that have to do with, you know, intergenerational uh, community, neighborhood. You know, just doubling and tripling down on uh, the face to face encounters. I will say, as a teacher, that I really think that being a candid, humane person to my students who has office hours, who talks to them, who discloses, right, who who talks about my kids and my dogs and is a, a human, not just a professor, which is who I am anyway. It's not a choice I've made. I happen to be that person. I know that for some of them, I then become the only person over 23 whom they ever talk to in person when they're away from home, who they feel is a fellow human, because a lot of professors are very Olympian in their approach to students. And I think that, um, I think that does model something, um, you know, yeah, I don't want to be smug about, I don't want to be smug about that. That's me being myself. And I think that, um, someone about their parents' age who talks to them as fellow adults is, um, is something that they're just used to be more of. And there is probably more of on some small campuses than there is at a big university, like the one where I teach. Yeah. And I think that if, if coarsening is the one tendency, I think that's, that's a humanizing experience to, to have a, have somebody like that in your life. Okay. So I, I want, I want to jump. I want to, I want to do a big jump here because I've been thinking about this whole, like we're talking about how do you have this great conversation? How do you open your mind? How do you, you know, and, and, and what I'm wondering is, is on some level, we're the privileged, we're the secure, like, like, and I'm not just talking about like economically or socially privileged. I feel like emotionally secure. One of the reasons I'm so open to having my mind changed is because I genu generally was raised to feel really good about myself mm -hmm. as a person. And part of that is the family that I grew up in and the way that my parents treated me. I think part of that was also being like a rich white man um, mm -hmm. where I didn't get shit on in lots of situations. Um, mm -hmm. And so one of the, I guess the questions I've got is, it's one thing if, if you and I disagree about public policy and we get in a, or like you and that professor that called you an asshole, like that's two privileged people having a conversation. But what happens when you or I are talking to somebody from the Black Lives Matter movement? You know, like some, somebody from the neighborhood who's awakened by the George Floyd stuff and is out there protesting and wants to talk to us about our stuff. Do they have different responsibilities than we do? Like, is that conversation easier for us or, 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 or harder for us? Like, or, or what about when I'm talking to a woman about woman's issues? 
do I mean I, do you feel any I, kind of deeper responsibility because of the 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 place you come to that conversation from? I think yes. So I would say that um we probably in that conversation should be practicing more humility than in other conversations. But that doesn't mean we don't get to have a say. It doesn't mean look, there are people I'm out, let, let me speak from the Jewish community, right? I could say to you as an, a, an ex-Christian, you know, as a, as a humanist of Christian heritage, who's not Jewish, you know, I could say, how dare you have a point of view on Israel or on Holocaust reparations, or which, by the way, have been hugely fraudulent, right? I mean, reparations in the Jewish community is, you know, have often been paid out to people who uh, had specious claims, have often been, you know, opportunities for shakedowns. Um, it's, a, it's a really problematic story that has not fully been told. So I could say, who are you as a Christian to point that out to me? Or who are you as a Christian or a humanist, a non-Jew to point out the clay feet in Israel and the two narratives in Israel and Palestinian rights? Who are you to mix that up with? The answer is, well, you're a fellow human being and you might see some stuff more clearly than I do. Now that said, you probably want to have a certain humility and gingerness with my feelings and with the fact that I do have a personal stake or an emotional stake that is deeper than yours. So I think you want to be humane and probably want to check yourself a little bit more if you're feeling confrontational. But I believe all to you know, any human being, like we don't part of the job of freedom is recognizing the freedom of others to be, to think, to feel, and and also to recognize the radical, you know, social justice movements have to recognize the radical humanity in all people. They can't ask anyone to um, to shut up and sit down and be invisible. And you know I've been thinking a lot about how in the um, in you know, the, the misogyny in the black power movement, and I forget which of the um, leaders, if it was Eldridge Cleaver or Huey Newton who was asked what the role of women was in the black power movement. Do you know this this story? I do. And he said prone you know, <laughs> on their backs. Oh yeah. And I think it's not apocryphal. I think he actually said it. But in any event, it was relayed by, it's told by women in that movement about how the pressure at that time to sit down, and take a back seat because the the black men were fighting an important battle and, and to mix it up with women's rights was- oh, and it, didn't, it didn't have to be that coarse. You could go into black churches, the churches of the great civil rights leaders and the the, the, the party line on on the role of women was, you know, was also pretty retrograde. Yeah. Make the coffee. And and within feminism, right, and, and there's a brilliant essay about this by, uh, I think it's Letty Cotton Pogrebin, one of the founders of Ms. Magazine, an early essay in Ms. Magazine about anti-Semitism in the women's movement. A lot of the early Gentile feminists, or second wave feminists, uh, had problems with Jews, were anti-Semites, and, um, and didn't want to hear from the Jewish women about it. And basically said, like, this is, you were not going to, you have to take a back seat, keep your Judaism quiet because we're fighting for the ERA or fighting for equality in the home. And, um, you know, and there was anti-Semitism in uh, the Women's March and um, in, among the leadership that's been reported on. And so, you know, the idea that one freedom movement would say to other people interested in freedom, but maybe from a different angle or in a, in a different, you know, in a an overlapping movement, right? The idea that one people in one movement would say to those who overlap with them, you shut up and sit down because I, you know, I have the floor right now is actually not the way that liberty progresses. That actually is a setback for liberty. 
you know, liberty is integrated. It, it, it recognizes that, that freedom and liberty are synthetic and integrated and, ha- and, and progress for all pe- should progress for all people simultaneously. Otherwise, you just end up with a kind of, of Stalinism where you say, like, everyone has to repress all individuality for the sake of, of the movement. That's where it tends. And I, I, just, I just reject that. Like, I don't, um, you know, I'm allowed to speak in any movement and I might have something to, of value to add. And that doesn't mean I get to foreground myself. There's certainly times for me to let someone else be the speaker and someone else will have more knowledge. And I should always be proceeding with radical humility. But I don't think that, you know, my role is ever um, to be invisible or to shut up if I think I have something to add. I just, I, I, you know, maybe it is sometimes, but I should proceed from the idea that I'm a human being with worth. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it, sometimes if, you know, it's funny. And by the way, like that, that is true of the movements I'm interested in that I have a personal stake in as well. Like it is not for me to say to Christians or Muslims, like, how dare you meddle in this Jewish question? Like we, first of all, we need those points of view. They're going to see things we don't. And we need allies and we have to be respectful of our allies and be grateful to our allies. And and if they don't get something, we have to work with them in a respectful, humane way. Roman sent me this video of this guy wearing a woke t-shirt and this other guy wearing a racist t-shirt. And they were talking about all the things they agreed on. And, you know, one of the things, you know, at one point they both say out loud, you know, um, you know, People should be allowed to talk or not allowed to talk only on the basis of race. <laughs> and they were like, we agree <laughs> on that. Because sometimes it feels like in the very liberal community, there are people say, oh, Mark, you, you can't speak to that issue. You're a white man. You're not, you, you're not allowed to have a voice on that issue. You're, you, they mar- and, and, and so in a sense, like they, they denote like who is allowed to talk about anything or who is allowed to tell the story or who is allowed to report on something. And and so I, I I find myself strangely drawn to the to the idea that what you're saying the idea that you're articulating that you know I may need to be humble but I I don't need to be silent. Um, yeah, I mean I, you can't. Um, I just, among other things, it's just bad organizing <laughs> because because if you make people afraid to speak up and point out things they're seeing, you're going to lose out on some of their wisdom and all people have some wisdom. So, you know, it's. And as you were talking about coalition building, like at some point you have to get the people that look like that person you're silencing, you have to get them to join the coalition. And so if you go like, join our coalition, you'll sit in the back and be quiet. Right. They're not going to join. They're not going to join. And you need their votes. And, and, and why would they join? They have one life to live on earth. They have a, we all have a finite amount of days on this planet where we're seeking a bunch of things. We're seeking meaning. We're seeking joy. We're seeking, you know, obviously nutrition and survival, but we're seeking some sort of transcendence and meaning and sense that we, that we mattered and that, and that we were engaged and in a way that, that we're, that, that we're that a part of something world. bigger than ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And if you won't let me be a part of it, yeah. And by the way, I should say that there are definitely movements where I have taken stock and thought, I don't have anything to add except to write a check or to vote properly, <laughs> you know, like, um, 
and and that's what I will then do. Like I'll, I'll write out the check for eighteen dollars, and I'll try to vote well and be conscious and and factored into my decisions about whom I support for office. But I might not have a lot to add beyond that, and then I'll stay home, you know, um, or and that's okay too. We don't all have to be all in for everything. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a guy named Alex Ozar, who's a graduate student at Yale, who's also an Orthodox rabbi and philosophy grad student, who's writing a dissertation that I think is going to be such an important book on three Jewish American thinkers, Jewish thinkers, uh, Heschel, Hannah Arendt, Abraham Joshua Heschel, Hannah Arendt, and, um, Joseph Soloveitchik, the great modern Orthodox rabbi. And one of the things, and his, he's been trying to answer the question, what do we owe to each other? Which is so relevant right now. Like, do we all owe everything? Do we all have to drop everything when someone says Black Lives Matter or climate change or the Uyghurs are in the concentration camp in China? And the answer is we can't all drop everything for every issue. Like we're allowed, the person whose passion is the pro-choice movement does not have to say, well, I'm going to set that aside for two years now and work on Black Lives Matter. She or he has built their life around the pro-choice movement. That's where their expertise is. That's where their connections are. They can keep doing the work that, they, that they've been called to do. But what Alex says is, and again, he's synthesizing a bunch of thinkers is, at the very least, they have to act as if they're responsible for everything in the world not guilty for everything, not on the hook for it, but responsible. We're all responsible to each other. And that means giving a hearing to everyone if they can. So you at least have to listen to the people who are saying you should come join my cause or my issue, but you can then make your own choices about where your effort is best spent, which is just a long way of saying that like, if there are people who think I have nothing to add except to sit there quietly, then probably I should be doing other work because there are places where I have a lot of wisdom to add. And I should just give my vote or my dollars to that other cause. What do I owe? That's a really interesting, like, like I'm going like, okay. Cause I'm, I'm not, sh you, you, yeah, you have to give a hearing, but, but I also think that you need to ask yourself a question about how your movement either does or doesn't impact that other person's movement or that other person's concern. Like, are you, mm -hmm. are you part of the problem that they're addressing? Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the things that I find overwhelming right now, so I, my, my, my parents got me a subscription to the New York review of books. Oh yeah. Good publication. Oh, it's great. I got up, I, I got up and I started, I, I started reading this issue and the first article was by Bill McKibben about how global warming were totally fucked. And the next one was about, um, sexism and we're totally fucked. And the next one was like, it was, by the time I got done, I just wanted to crawl into a hole and whimper. And mm -hmm. I realized that everybody's telling me I owe everything to everything. And I just, I get overwhelmed and I, and it ends up, it ends up freezing me. And so the world is overwhelming right now. Yeah, it is. And, and so I think it becomes important to, to be able to answer the question and with something other than I owe everything or I run away, but saying like, I'm, you know, I owe $18 to that movement and that movement and that movement and this one I owe the rest of my life. Yeah. I mean, you're allowed to be, to, to have a soul and to be a self. And by the way, the people who depend on you, your children and your grandchildren, your friends, your neighbors need you to not obliterate yourself. Um, they need you to continue being you. 
And, um, and I think that's really important. I've, I've had, I have a real personal, but also philosophical difference with the idea that anyone thinks they have a claim on anyone else to be a soldier for their particular movement. And I see this in all communities, right? I see Jews who feel like, hey, you have a Jewish last name. Your grandpa was Jewish. Uh, why aren't you speaking out more about anti-Semitism right now? You know, and the quarter Jewish guy who wasn't raised with a lot of religion and doesn't identify with the community might say, like, you know, I just don't feel I have a lot to add. Like, it's I hear you, but and similarly, you know, I got you know an email. I mean, remember when in the early days of after the George Floyd killing, every business was sending out an email saying how they support Black Lives Matter, and I thought, you know, I'm just not sure that my dry cleaner or my bakery has something meaningful to add to this. This is performative. They're doing it because it's expected of them. And they're doing it because somebody there believes in the movement. But I actually don't believe that the way that my bakery can serve the community or my dry cleaner is to send out this email, um, which might be making a lot of promises about future business practices they haven't really thought through. Like, I wish they'd take some time and think first. It cheapens the whole thing. It cheapens the whole thing. It cheapens the whole thing. And, um, you know, I just think, and, and by the way, one of the people I admire most is one of the worldwide experts on what the Uyghurs are going through in China, where they really are being, you know, put in concentration camps. I mean, the, the abuse there is, is such that if you're concerned about what's going on with the sort of malnutrition in Venezuela or the situation of Palestinians, and then you look at what the Uyghurs are going through, it's like so much worse and nobody cares. And I can absolutely imagine her standing on a street corner saying, all of you should be signing up for this right away. And she'd have a point. And yet, you know, people have to figure out what they're called to do. You know, other people can't enslave us to their cause by, you know, they can't, they shouldn't be using guilt or it's not enslaving us, but co- the coercion that, that someone else gets to pick what I'm best at and what my, what my gift should be used for and how I should spend my time away from my family is not a successful organizing practice. And you it isn't and 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 there's this idea that i i'm wrestling with right now because i i i am overwhelmed i'm overwhelmed by all the causes and all the ideas and all the things that i think you should be worried about and and i'm sort of right now i'm sort of going my area of expertise is how to have conversations with people who think differently so like that's right. what i'm going to talk about like i'm trying to contribute to all the movements by contributing to a better, a better atmosphere to talk about movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I find myself thinking that one of the things that many of these movements have in common is a desire to repair or make amends for past wrongdoing, whether it's, Israel reparations or African-American reparations or affirmative action for women, whatever, you know, creating seats at the table for different groups of people, that there's Mm -hmm. a sense in which there's a real desire to like, how do we undo the dominance hierarchies and the aggression and the bad behavior and and I'm really all about trauma-informed care of anything or anyone. Mm-hmm. But I, 
I fundamentally think it is a fool's errand to think that there was, you know, that that there was that there's any time in the past that you can turn back to and go like, that's when things were the way they were supposed to be. So that's like that's our baseline. Like I, I, I don't, I, I don't know if I'm being articulate on this, but I find myself part of the reason I'm overwhelmed is because what people want, like we're not going to be done with this race thing until we have undone the horror of slavery. And I just think, Oh, if that's, if that's what we're going for, I give up right now. I can't, I, I don't think it's well, that's possible. Right. The, you know, I can't remember if I was saying this to you cause I've been saying this to a lot of people lately, but, um, if you want to ask, are we going to end racism, which is the kind of thing that Ibram Kendi says, um, and some of the other kind of very, um, you know, fashionable thinkers of the moment, um, ask if we've ended anti-Semitism. We're 3,000 years in, and there's a lot of it, um, and it comes in waves. And the answer is no. Nope. We're not going to end it. Racism's not going away. I'm trying to end it in my own life and the people I care about. I try to be, and you know, I think anti-racist work is important, but when you set the bar as, I mean, I've, I can't remember, but I've seen comments like, well, when we end racism, you know, when, or it, it, you see it a lot in sort of New York times type talking heads these days, you know, in the quest to end racism. And it's interesting. We, we're not going to end sexism. We're not going to end anti-Semitism. We can get better, but humans are really, bad creatures and they tend to make group divisions for evolutionary reasons. And you, and, and maybe the goal. And and I'm that guy too. Like, I like, and you know, you say end racism or end, end otherism. And I go like, yeah, you bring 300,000 Syrian refugees to my city and you're going to be amazed at how much I try to protect my way of life. Yeah. Like I'm that guy too. We all, we all, we all are people who worry about our own backyards and who worry about, and who get very conservative all of a sudden when there's a lot of tumultuousness. And I see it in myself. I like my restaurants. I like the, I like the kind of food I eat. I like the way we celebrate holidays and you go like, well, what if your community became much more diverse? And what if, what if we, you know, brought in all these people from a completely different culture and it changed it? And I go like, yeah, I, I wouldn't like it. A, re- a, a guy I know who's a really serious musician um, said to me, I was talking about like, why was music so good when I was 13? And he said, music was always good whenever you were 13. Right. <laughs> like that's the music you love is you the music set. that hit you when you were having your first crushes, when you were hormonal, when you were kind of like going through puberty, when, when, you were, when music meant everything. And it's never better than when you were 13. You know, I mean, I've heard the, the same line, you know, the best Saturday Night Live cast was the cast when you were in eighth grade. Yeah. And it's and, kind you know, of true. Like and Dana Carvey. Right. <laughs> like, right. Conversely, like Nick Hornby says, like, oh, if you wanted to really mess me up, you had to get to me early. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, like that's what, like, if you want to really screw me up, right. Get to me early. A great line. And if you want to really make me love something, but like the fact of the matter is, is that we are conservative, culturally conservative by nature. Absolutely. But we all are, is the thing. Everyone turns into the grumpy old person. And so it's, it, it becomes, I think, um, you know, really important uh, that 
we like proceed with compassion toward others and that we understand that other people have prior commitments that we can't ask them to necessarily um, give up. You know, I think that changing the name of the Redskins was absolutely the right decision. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. I can't imagine, you know, I think some Native Americans were fine with it apparently, but I think a lot of Native Americans, but they are a tiny minority. And more importantly, there's we, we know there's a substantial number who were offended by it. And it's just, you know, it's just unacceptable, right? I'm glad they're changing. At the same time, I understand that there's loss for people who are not racist, but who just grew up loving this particular team. They didn't pay attention to the racialization they of the name. They were 13. They were 13. They were 13 when know, they went to their first Redskins game. And it, game. Was, it was Riggins and, Thi- and, and, and what was his name? Theismann. Theismann and, you know, and that was, that was their childhood. And that was the name. And I've often thought of this because, you know, there are people who float the idea, are we going to change the name of Yale? Because now Elihu Yale was not a slaveholder, but his company, because it worked in international trade, definitely dealt with some slave traders. I mean, he had a sort of like a a sort of tangential relationship as capitalists or mercantilists in that era did to the slave trade. Um, And I don't think they're changing the name of Yale. But when they talk about it, I think, you know, I mean... When you change a name, one of the things you're doing is you are doing some violence to the to the sentimentality and nostalgia and memories of people who attached to that name simply because they were placed in those buildings at a given age, often not even by their choice. Their dad packed them off to Yale or to, you know, whatever, you know, to Robert E. Lee College or whatever when they were too young to know better. And that became their memories and that they have to give something up. You know, they have to, they should give something up like those Confederate statues should come down. But we also have to be aware that people's memories and emotions are not rational, just like certain theological beliefs are not rational, just like certain romances are irrational. We fall in love with the wrong people sometimes, people who are horrible to us. And we have to, like, just proceed with a kind of compassion all the time, I think. I think we get farther when we do. You know? and, and, and I think also a kind of nuance that says absolutely the Redskins needed to go and absolutely the Robert E. Lee statues in Richmond, you know, erected in the 60s to, to cow black people who are trying to fight against Jim Crow. Like, yeah, those got to go. And then, they, and then they come for Christopher Columbus and I go like, Probably. And then they come for George Washington, like, hmm. And then they come for Jefferson. And I go, like, you know, all these ideas that you're using to fight these things, like they they came from him. And you go like, but he but he was terrible on this issue. And I go like, yeah, but that they, they didn't put him up on the statue because of his racial issues. They put him up because of his somebody, political ideology. Somebody out there you There's know, nuance. I, for, I forget who it was said the question should be, was this person in their time working to make the world better or worse? You know, and Jefferson was somebody working to make the world better. Um, even by the stand, by the standards of his time and by the standards of our time, there are things he didn't move forward on that he should have, but overall we moved forward as a country and as a people because of him, not backwards. John Calhoun, that was very different. Calhoun was working to keep us in the past. You know, right. That's a very different standard. And and what's interesting is, is that they always say like, you can't judge people in the past by our standards. And I go like, well, actually you kind of can, but like, were they working to make the world better by our standards? And yeah. you go like, 
Was that their primary thing? And you're like, yeah, but he was wrong on 17 other things. Or, and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but he was working to make a better world by our standards. Which I think is one of the things that some people say about the New Testament with regard to slavery and gender relations, which was for its time, it was a progressive document, right? That, that the, the attitudes to what slaves owed and what women owed and what men owed women for their time were radically progressive given the backdrop. Is that, I mean, you know more about this than I do. Yeah, well, and, and I'm, I'm always cool with people dealing with the scriptures as historical documents that chart a certain era of human thought. It's when people tell me that they are um, divinely inspired and equally relevant in all moments, including this one, that I right. go like, hey, now we've got a problem. Right. Right. Um, then you've got to do some fancy gymnastics to make it work. And and so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 all, I, I think what we're, what we're trying to say is, and I think this is, it has to do with the, mag, the magnitude, if you make it about, if you make being a good person about righting every wrong and eradicating racism and eradicating sexism and creating an, an egalitarian world where everybody has the same stuff and nobody's too rich and nobody's too poor, it's so beyond possible and so against nature in some ways that I, 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 I become the air, the wind goes out of my sails. I become despondent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you say to me, Hey, listen, we gotta, we gotta make sure that the police treat people better. Yep. Okay. I'm with you. Like, yeah. And, and, and that's your issue. And somebody else is like, and I'm fighting for the Uyghurs and you're like, okay, I'm, you know, and again, like, I feel like I owe something to all of those movements. And maybe it is that to act responsibly, to be a part. I can't, I can't give everything to every movement, but I feel like I owe something to every movement, even if it's just my listening and my, and my. Well, that's what Alex says. He says, the first thing you have to do is if at all possible, give them a hearing, take them seriously. Right. And that's, I mean, think of, you know, I feel like a lot of what's gone on with this current Black Lives Matter moment is that a lot of people who didn't used to give it a hearing are giving it a hearing. Now, a lot of people are doing more. A lot of people are giving money or time, labor, sweat, uh, promises. Or writing letters that they don't really mean. Right. Or writing, sometimes writing performative virtue signaling letters they don't really mean. But the... I think that a lot of what we've seen, you know, in, in addition to the protests, right, but there have been protests before that have not left much in their wake. I think a lot of what we're seeing now is a lot of people said, yeah, I have to give this, like, I have to, to listen to this. I have to give it a hearing. And opening your mind just that little bit ends up meaning that, like, then when the legislation comes along or the candidate comes along that's going to do more, that you don't shut them down right away. You think, oh, that's not crazy. No, that's beautiful. I mean, I'm, 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 I- I'm very excited as somebody who lived in neighborhoods my whole life. I'm very excited about the, the overwhelming, like, like I like the, the fact, the way that this has been put into the conversation. I'm, I'm not excited about the way the conversation is proceeding. And that's why we're talking is how do we make it a better conversation? Mm -hmm. But it's, it's a really good, it's good that that's a big part of our conversation right now. 
And I think that, I think that the me too thing, again, like I'm really worried about the cancellation of people and I'm really worried about the, 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 the way in which people are overreaching, but, but I think it's a really good conversation. Like I'm not, I don't want to come across as some guy who's like, I just would everybody just shut up and things are fine the way they are. It's not that at all. It, it's, it's just that I, I, I want to stay engaged in not just the people I care about, but being open to caring about people who I didn't even know about. Yeah. I want to be, I want to stay in that space. And I, I'm worried that if the conversation gets too harsh and if the requirement that you show up, that you, you show up correct at the very beginning rather than showing up curious and, and being, and, and then learning something, if you have to be correct at the very beginning or you get thrown out of the room, um, I'm just worried that if we if 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 the conversation becomes too harsh and too demanding, that it's it's going to work in the opposite direction. We we won't actually end up with a better world. There's a reason these things are called movements, right? Is that they 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 move, and you know that means they're going over time and they're changing. They're not moments, right? They're movements, and so they have to be flexible and they have to be receptive and they have to be correcting errors internally. And um, so you hope that some of those disciplines come through. And I think that, um, you know, I think the world I live in, in journalism, um, we have swung way too hard to a certain kind of um, ideological activism. We've thrown out some of our yeah. core principles and in a lot of cases. Um, and, and one of our core principles is radical skepticism. You know, to my mind, if you have a particular agenda, you should be, you should be reporting articles that will be uncomfortable for your agenda you know, and, um, and that's not what's happening. What's happening is they're putting people on beats that they want to cover because they believe in, you know, they're putting the, the activist, the, the journal. I mean, all of us have the issue that we feel activist about that. Maybe that isn't the thing we should be covering. Maybe we should be covering the community that we don't think we care about at all, or that we're a little bit scornful of and trying to find the interesting side of the story there. Um, so, and, and I think so journalism let, let, let me wrap you up job. one. Yeah. Let me, let me, on that question, let yeah. me ask you, wrap you up. Like, I know it's not the Uyghurs for you. <laughs> like, I know, you, I know, you know, you listen to your friend and, but I know that's not what you're going to, what you're going to, you know, go to war on. Right. That's not your, that's not your number one issue. What would you say in terms of like this process of making the world better? What would you say is your number one issue? What's the thing that, that, that you wish it? That, that you're evangelistic about or that you're, that you're devoted to? Um, so I think that the thing that I find myself feeling most preachy about, where I feel like, oh, if I could just get this person to open their mind to this, is um, really what we've been talking about is sort of kindness and decency. That I think interpersonal kindness actually makes movements better. I think it actually um, reduces you know, the stress and it allows people to get through trauma better. A lot of this comes from the work I was doing in Pittsburgh after the synagogue shooting that um, sometimes people who are movement builders are, sometimes people who are trying to change the world are often quite cruel to the people right next to them. You know, this was something I learned growing up on the left is that a lot of people who my parents were friends with, who cared so much about every cause in the world, uh, cared about every cause in the world, except tipping their waitress properly or, spending time with their children or being thoughtful about their spouse. 
And I really, you know, just feel like the thing that I tend to see well and have some sort of good analysis about where I can be useful is helping to call people to what are you doing interpersonally that's kind and decent. So to me like that, I know that's a kind of meta comment. You're, you're saying what's the specific cause, No, but, um, you know, um, but I take it super, super seriously. And, and I guess I would say if I had to list a couple causes, I mean, I am very interested in anti-Semitism, which is reaching, you know, which is, is growing rapidly in America. And right now, you know, the, the odds that you will suffer a hate crime as a Jew are higher than the odds that you'll suffer a hate crime as a member of any other religious group in America, um, according to the FBI and the Anti-Defamation League, according to all the statistics we have. We are in a, a moment of anti-Semitism that's not getting enough attention right now. Um, including a lot of violence, a lot of violent attacks on Jews um, who who look Jewish uh, because of how they dress. And um, but the other one I would say is is you know what you might call a women's issue, but I'd call it a family issue as well. You know, which is um, you know parental leave, family care leave for elderly you know relatives, just just a more humane workplace for people who are trying to be good to their families and make a living. I just think that would be, I mean, imagine if we had a European style safety net for people who have young children, just would be transformative. So, yeah, yeah, I'm big on those. No, I mean, and and those don't sound like, you you know, you said the first one is meta, you know, I'm I'm, I'm worried about like promoting kindness in dialogue. And and, and I think, no, I don't think that's meta at all. Um, I remember that old company 3M, they used to have an advertising campaign. We don't make the things you know. We make all the things you know better because they, they were right. working to change in industrial right. processing right. stuff. Oh, can I say one more thing? Yeah. Sorry. The other thing, this isn't a movement. I don't know how to do this, but one of the things I really wish is I think we're in the most humorless moment in American history. I think everyone's afraid, <laughs> not only afraid to make a joke, which is obviously true, but people feel like it's somehow you know, unvirtuous to laugh or to have any joy. And that's as much related to the pandemic as it is related to social justice movements going on at the same time. Like, right, because some people are suffering so badly in the pandemic, there's this idea that we're not allowed to have any mirth because that might be insensitive to other people's suffering, which is ironic because often suffering people are the most mirthful because they have a kind of, they need a kind of gallows humor to get through the day. I mean, there were jokes in the concentration camps. There was a book about Holocaust humor in the concentration camps. You need humor to survive stuff. And right now people have forgotten that. They think that humor is a problem. It just drives me crazy. I do not think the radical movements of the 60s and 70s killed off humor, broadly speaking, as much as the current moment. It is it is Soviet level hostility to humor and fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's I hadn't thought, I, you know, I hadn't thought about humor much lately, but I'm not hearing much either. So, but the reason I don't think your stuff is, is crazy is, is you say like, well, Bart, what do you, what do you spend the most of your time reading, thinking, trying to figure out, working on? And you're like, oh yeah, I'm trying to create intergenerational church-like communities for people who don't believe in God, because I think in the end, a lot of people aren't going to believe in God and we're going to suffer as a society if we don't have those communities, because they will make the dialogue better and they will make all sorts of things better and they will reduce depression and anxiety and they will like, like I think they are the solution mm-hmm. to many of our ills. Um, and you go like, really, that's kind of meta. Like you're just thinking like you just get people to know each other and gather weekly to, to think about no, becoming better people. And I go like, you know what, that, that yeah, that's my thing. Mm-hmm. And so 
I think that might be the 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 last positive thing. You know, we've put a few like this is what we think is a better idea things out there. Yep. And I think maybe the last one would be um, you don't have to be committed to everything, but you probably ought to be able to answer the question, what you know, what are you actively committed to? Mm-hmm. You ought to have something. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you don't, I think you will be less able to really relate to and understand all the other people that are into all the other things. Yep. There's something that somebody who's radically committed to climate change, when I see them foaming at the mouth and saying, you don't understand how important this is. This is the key to everything. I get that person. Not because I understand climate change very well, but because I feel the exact same way about human connection and and, and interpersonal hum- connection. Um, and so I just think like, it makes you better for all the movements. It makes you a better ally to everybody if you're passionate about something. Mm-hmm. If you if, if you're if if you're actively engaged and and studying and and, and focusing on, it, on on something, and I think you almost have to release yourself from the obligation to care about everything, so that you can care about something, so that you can be good for everybody else. I, I think that's right. I think that's very well put. Yeah, I'll let you have the last word. It's your podcast. You get the last word. Ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> hey, I will, t- I will tell you one thing. You know, I, I am worried about anti-Semitism, but increasingly I'm worried about yo-Semitism. <laughs> I was, you know, I have a shirt that says yo-Semite. That, like, that's a Jewish <laughs> joke. There's, a, there's a, a brilliant woman who made a bunch of funny Jewish t-shirts um, a number of years ago. Or, uh, one of them, one of the classics shows a tree and it just says, you know, it's like a, a wilderness t-shirt and or a tree or a rock or something. And then underneath it, it says, yo, and then there's just a little space. It says Semite. And, you know, if I wear that t-shirt around, you know, for a day or so, one or two people will walk by me and then you hear them laugh like three feet after they pass me, they get it. And, uh, oh my God, that made me so happy that Trump said, yo, Semite, just the best, <laughs> the best. Yeah. He's good for something. He's good for something. Good for something. And you're good for something. Dude. Thanks oh, for thanks. talking, man. Absolutely. All right, bro. Okay, bye. Bye. All right. That was it. I hope that was helpful. Can you tell I enjoyed that conversation? Can you tell I love that guy? I hope so. Now, I'm not going to record every conversation I have with Mark Oppenheimer for the rest of my life. But I got to tell you, I'm glad I had an excuse to track him down, you know, that whole Harper's letter thing, because I just got so much out of being with him. It's funny. He, he and I are, are, are the same in that way, in that we actually think by talking. We think by interacting. That's maybe why I like podcasting. It's why I like listening to podcasts, because I find myself talking back to a podcast in a way I don't talk back to a television show or the radio even, but there's something about the intimacy of a podcast where I find myself genuinely interacting with it. And that helps me think and that helps me live. So anyway, if you're here, you're probably like me that way. And I'm glad to have you on the team. All right, listen, I usually give an Ingersoll quote. I've got one. It's totally appropriate and it's short. And so both of those things are great. So here it is. Are you ready? Robert G. Ingersoll said, in The Liberty of Man, Woman and Child, an essay of his, this is my doctrine. Give every other human being 
every right you claim for yourself. I'll say it again. This is my doctrine. Give every other human being every right you claim for yourself. That is a good thing to do in a conversation. The right to be listened to. The right to be taken seriously. The right to be loved. It's a good thing to do in a political crisis. The right to be safe. The right to be treated fairly by the police. It's a good thing to do for the rest of time. This is my doctrine. Give every other human being every right you claim for yourself. That's a great place to leave it, and we'll leave it there. See you next time. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at humanize me pod on Twitter and humanize me podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search humanize me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life, bigger than the world, living now. Oh,